Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Saturday, December 10th, 2022. It's been 3,209 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 290 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. The situation in Bakhmut is extremely difficult, and there is a lot of information coming in. We strive to report the most up-to-date information possible, but at some point we have to hit publish. Let's go ahead and get started with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that the commander of all Russian forces in Ukraine, Army General Sergei Sorovyakin, has increased the operational tempo to create a political victory before December 31st by employing the same strategy as his predecessor, Colonel General Alexander Lapin, on the Solidar-Bakhmut axis. Second, we maintain that Russia is still conducting stealth mobilization, and it's almost certain that the second wave of partial mobilization will begin in January or February 2023, despite Kremlin denials. Third, We maintain that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine has diminished further and is now a remote possibility during the winter months. Fourth, our assessment that terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure would continue at least through December 22nd was accurate, with Shahed-136 drone strikes on Ukrainian electrical infrastructure. Fifth, We maintain Russia will not stop until the Ukrainian electrical grid and natural gas network are completely destroyed, or Russia's supply of missiles and drones is exhausted. Sixth, we maintain that the risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction is possible. Seventh, we maintain that Russian President Vladimir Putin is facing more unrest outside the Kremlin with the Russian information space outraged over the drone strikes on Russian airbases. Eighth, we maintain that Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu is reaching a point where his continued leadership of the Russian Federation Armed Forces is at risk, and it will be politically difficult to blame Army General Sorovyakin, Commander-in-Chief of the Russian Aerospace Forces, for failing to defend Russian airbases. Ninth, we maintain that neither belligerent will institute a winter pause. Tenth, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective and can only mount effective defensive operations. Eleventh, we maintain that the private military company Wagner Group is spread too thin to be combat effective due to its expanding role in the Donetsk Oblast 
and the revelation of crippling battlefield losses. And finally, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. There were no reports of fighting around Novoselivske, with Russian forces shelling Ukrainian positions throughout the day. One source claimed Ukrainian forces had been pushed out of the village because it had been reduced to rubble, but there were no claims by Russian sources of recapturing the settlement. We increased the gray area on our war map. Fighting continued in Ploshanka, and Ukrainian positions in Chervonopopivka were shelled throughout the day. Both belligerents reported the situation was difficult. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported a Russian attack on Nevsky was repelled. Serhi Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, said during an interview on OnePlus One that humanitarian aid was distributed in the village and residents were starting to return to their homes. So, in our assessment... So, in our assessment, the attack on Nevsky was a Russian or private military company Wagner Group DRG squad. Quick sidebar, DRG stands for Diversion Reconnaissance Group. Positional fighting continued east of Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk. Unreliable Russian sources claimed that up to three platoons of Ukrainian forces crossed the Seversky Donetsk northeast of Bilohorivka and are establishing a bridgehead near Shiplivka. We do not believe that this claim is accurate, as Ukrainian forces don't need to ford the Seversky Donetsk River to reach Shiplivka. Russian state media shared pictures of a BMPT Terminator urban warfare tank in the forests of Sotova. Russia fielded fewer than a dozen of the Terminators in June near Severodonetsk. Russia may have expanded its inventory, which was estimated to be nine combat-ready vehicles in June of this year. The BMPT was wearing the updated plus-sign invasion mark. The Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR JCCC, reported that Ukrainian forces hit targets in Novopiskov and Svatova using rockets fired by HIMARS. Novopiskov is 87 kilometers from the known line of conflict, suggesting that Ukraine may be further east than reported. Although 87 kilometers is close to the published range, it is extremely unlikely that Ukrainian forces would bring an M142 or M270 right to the battle line to fire at a long-range target. In northeast Donetsk, there was an unreliable report that private military company or PMC Wagner Group had entered Spirna, with the proof being an 11-second video clip with no landmarks to make geolocation possible. We made absolutely no changes to the map because of the mercenary group's recent and repeated false and premature claims of battlefield success. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me three to four times, that's, that's my bad. These reports are likely psychological operations to try and lower Ukrainian morale. I guess they're jealous of their buggy. The GSAFU reported continued fighting in Yakovlivka, with mercenaries from Rybar claiming that cleanup operations were ongoing, with Ukrainian forces falling back to Solidar. While the situation is extremely difficult along the T-1302 highway, there continues to be no evidence to support the notion that Ukrainian forces ever lost control of the settlement, but the situation remains very fluid. PMC Wagner, supported by Russian Mobix, 
continued to pressure Bakhmutska without changing the situation. PMC Wagner, again supported by Russian Mobix, continues to make gains northeast and east of Bakhmut, where the situation is deteriorating for Ukrainian forces. We have privately received videos that we could geolocate and weather confirm that we are not sharing to respect operational security, or OPSEC. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces repulsed an attack on Pirhorodne, enabling us to update our war map and provide some additional information. During the daylight hours, Russian Mobix and PMC Wagner penal units are pushed to the front lines in continuous attacks between massive artillery barrages. After dark, better-equipped PMC Wagner mercenaries and Russian forces continue to strike at Ukrainian defensive positions. Artillery fire is nearly constant, and machine gun fire can be heard at the eastern urban edges of Bakhmut. Russian forces have advanced to their September 26th positions, which were the culmination point of the late summer attacks. Which were the culmination point of the late summer attacks. Ukrainian forces pushed PMC Wagner back almost two kilometers over a 48-hour period in late October. World War II Russian General Gyergy Zhukov would recognize not only the tactics, but the fighting conditions and some of the equipment used by penal units and poorly trained Mobics. The situation is extremely difficult for Ukrainian forces, and residents who have insisted they would not evacuate are asking to be rescued. Temperatures are expected to be between 2 and 7 degrees Celsius, which is 36 to 46 degrees Fahrenheit, and heavy rain may help slow the Russian advance. Fighting continued four kilometers south of Bakhmut in Opitne, with Ukrainian forces pushing Russian forces back. The situation south of Bakhmut on the T-513 highway is complex. Russian and Ukrainian forces reported fighting east of Klishivka with no change in the situation. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian positions in Andreevka were shelled and an attack on Kurdyumivka was repulsed. Further south, Ukrainian positions in Ozadyanivka were shelled, indicating a small push to the east. We still consider Ozadyanivka under Russian control, but the report hints that Ukrainian forces are counterattacking. Mercenaries with Rybar reported that Ukrainian forces to the, quote, west of the Mayorsk train station, end quote, were shelled. We had geo-confirmed a video showing Ukrainian forces were in the northeast corner of Mayorsk, and the GSAFU reported earlier this week that an attack had been successfully repelled. We maintain that Ukrainian forces hold a sliver of the village north of the train station. The GSAFU reported that Russian forces attacked Druzhba, and they were unsuccessful. We don't have any information on the size of the force. On August 30th, during the last major offensive push in this area, the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, First Army Corps had tried to advance into Shumi, which is immediately southeast of Druzhba, without success. In Kramatorsk, city officials were forced to shut down the thermal plant that provides heat to the city, due to, quote, constant Russian missile attacks, end quote. In southwest Donetsk, the operational tempo west of Donetsk continues to be low compared to last week. Fighting was reported south and east of Nevelske, with no other activity around Avdiivka. Only Rybar reported continued fighting in Marinka. Their report finally admitted that the 1st Army Corps of the DNR had not advanced past Druzhby Avenue, and was transitioning to a defensive strategy. 
If you heard a distant scream of anguish, that would be our map editor. We periodically audit our map and retire battle icons where fighting hasn't happened for at least 30 days. Well, nothing gets fighting restarted in an area like Pobita quite like doing a map audit. So we updated the update, and the Russian advance on the town south of Madinka was unsuccessful. There was another attack on the eastern edge of Novomikhailivka with no change in the situation. The Russian MOD claimed Ukrainian forces attempted to advance on Volodymyrivka and Mikilska without success. Rybar reported that Ukrainian forces were counterattacking in Pavlivka. We didn't make any changes to the map, but it is noteworthy that Russian forces appear to have moved to a defensive posture south of Vulidar. The People's Militia of the DNR claimed their forces destroyed a self-propelled howitzer and seven units of, quote, armored and automotive units. Donetsk was shelled again, with Ukrainian leaders becoming more vocal that regular Russian troops were shelling the city. We reported yesterday that a United Nations commission reviewed the shelling from December 5th and 6th and reported they could not determine which belligerent was attacking the city. Multiple videos showed illumination flares over the city that were so bright residents in Makievka could see them, and shared photos on social media. The parachute flares landed near the Central Railroad Station. City officials claimed the sealer factory was damaged in the attack. Alexander Korovsky, the former commander of the Vostok Battalion of the DNR, questioned the Russian Ministry of Defense's strategy in the Donbass. Kolokovsky wrote, quote, I have no right to tell the strategists what to do, but from the point of view of universal justice, any available offensive potential that could be involved in the capture of, for example, another Pavlivka, should be directed to the liberation of Donetsk. It is difficult to explain to people why, somewhere in the distant frontiers, we spend our resources on tasks of lower priority. End quote. Traffic is backed up for kilometers at the Novoazovsk border crossing, despite repeated claims since October from Moscow that the checkpoints will be removed. Insurgents in Mariupol report that Russian military traffic is snarled from the Novoazovsk border crossing to Melitopol as the region recovers from the impact of an ice storm that hit Wednesday into Thursday morning. Moving on to Kherson and Zaporizhia. There was mutual shelling by both belligerents in Kherson. Russian forces continued to target civilians and civilian infrastructure, conducting 51 fire missions on the Free Ukraine territories, killing two and wounding eight. Russian forces reportedly reoccupied Potemkin Island in the Dnipro River to provide an additional buffer to Holapristan and bring Kherson City into mortar range. We updated the map to show the change and consider the uninhabited area a no-man's land. The city of Kherson was shelled, along with Antonivka. Russian forces continue to purposely target Ukrainian hospitals, a terror tactic developed by Russian Army General Sorovyakin during his service in Syria. Russian forces set their sights on the hospital in Bereslav, causing significant damage. In eastern Kherson, Russian positions and troop concentrations in Holapristan, Radensk, Kostogrizovo, and Chaplinka were hit by artillery and rockets fired by HIMARS. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported that two Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones were shot down over Kherson. 
The Russian MOD claimed Ukrainian forces attacked Novodarivka on the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border. According to the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, there has been no operational change at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Reactors 1 through 4 are in cold shutdown, while reactors 5 and 6 are in hot shutdown, providing steam for heat and plant operations. Director General Rafael Grossi said, quote, The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains precarious, fragile, and potentially dangerous. We are doing everything we can to prevent a nuclear accident there, especially with our proposal to establish a nuclear safety and security protection zone around the facility. We are making progress in our consultations with Ukraine and Russia, and I'm hopeful the zone will be agreed and implemented soon. It is an urgent need. End quote. Grossi said that the repairs of the damage from the November 20th shelling of ZNPP had been completed, and the site continues to receive off-site power from the 750-kilovolt power line and the 330-kilovolt backup line connected to the Zaporizhia thermal power plant. The IAEA inspector team was rotated with a new group of inspectors arriving from Free Ukraine through Zaporizhia. The fifth load of supplies and spare parts arrived in a separate convoy, providing radiation detection and monitoring equipment. Enerhuatam officials reported that Russian soldiers entered the offices of the Department of Social Programs of the ZNPP and severely beat Alexei Trubenkov, department director, and his deputy, Yuri Androsov, for refusing to sign Rosatom contracts. The beatings occurred in front of other employees, and the two battered men were dragged out of the offices and taken into custody. ZNPP shift chief Konstantin Beiner, responsible for nuclear and radiation safety at the plant, was also arrested. In Russian-occupied Berdyansk, rocket attacks by HIMARS continued. Ukrainian officials claimed, without evidence, that two Russian helicopters and 30 units of military equipment were destroyed, and up to 50 Russian troops killed or wounded. Social media reports do support that an ammunition depot was destroyed. In the rest of Zaporizhia, Russian forces remain in a defensive posture, with only sporadic artillery and tank fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Huliapola, to Orehiv, to Stepova. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, there are 13 ships of the Black Sea fleet on patrol with no missile carriers, according to the Ukrainian Operational Armed Forces. Russian state media agency Zvezda reported that the Russian VKS is operating a 24-hour combat air patrol, or CAP, over Crimea using two Su-27s. Vitaly Kim, Mykolaiv Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, told Radio Svoboda, which, for reference, is the equivalent of PBS radio stations in the United States, that Russian forces have removed all civilians from the Kinburn Spit. Kim implied that Ukrainian forces are no longer present, and we have maintained significant doubt that the Ukraine reports were accurate in the first place. 
A Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missile landed in the beach area of Ochakiv in the early morning, causing no damage. OCS reported that air defenses shot down four Shahed-136 kamikaze drones over Mykolaiv. Ukrainian air defenses shot down two more Shahed-136 drones over Odessa, while others struck critical civilian infrastructure, knocking out power and destabilizing the Ukrainian power grid. There weren't any reports that water service was impacted, but local railroad and trolley service is disabled. In western and central Ukraine, in Dnipropetrovsk, Russian forces struck Nikopol and Markhanets with artillery. Four pensioners were injured, two requiring hospitalization, when a shell struck an 11-story apartment building. Vitaly Koval, Rivne Oblast administrative and military governor, recorded a video near the Belarusian border stating the situation was stable and there were no signs of Russian or Belarusian forces building up. In north and northeastern Ukraine, Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that the Romadas of Shalakhin and Yunakivka were hit by 48 mortars that landed close to the international border, causing no damage. A Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missile used for a ground attack landed in the town center of Velika Pisarivka, causing significant damage to over 20 homes, city administration offices, and the fire department. On the Russian front, well, here we are. After endless claims from Russian officials, Russian President Vladimir Putin finally admitted what we reported back in October, that the Crimea Bridge highway sections won't fully reopen until the end of March 2023, and only one line of the railroad section will be operational by midsummer. The second line isn't expected to be fixed until fall. Responding to reporters' questions, Putin said, quote, They promised to make the automobile part sometime in March. They planned later, but they promised they would finish by the end of March. And the railway part, one branch, is promised to be completed somewhere in the middle of summer. I am confident that everything will be done on time. End quote. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Well, once again, it's been zero days since the Kremlin threatened to use nuclear weapons. Russian President Putin threatened the establishment of a first-strike doctrine to disable the United States' nuclear capabilities, starting with the same refrain of superior weapons to the United States, claiming they have more modern and efficient cruise missiles. Putin said, quote, If we are talking about this disarming strike, then perhaps we should think about adopting the achievements of our American partners and their ideas of ensuring our security. We're just thinking about it. No one was shy when talking about it aloud in previous years. End quote. It's important to note that the United States does not have a first strike doctrine, and publicly stated when Russia made significant nuclear threats in October that a nuclear strike on Ukraine or another European nation would be met with a conventional weapon response. A journalist at the same press conference inquired about, quote, conflicting information on the provision of the Russian army, end quote asking, quote, who should we trust, the reports from the Ministry of Defense or the soldiers from the front, end quote. Putin responded, quote, you cannot trust anyone but me, end quote. Yep, that happened. He said that. <laughs> uh. Putin also backed off his claim from two days ago that maybe not everything is going to plan after all, 
and reaffirmed that, yeah, everything is. Everything is going to plan. <laughs> okay, but wait, there's more. There's more. While Russia is boasting about non-existent superior missile systems, Vasily Nebenzia, the Russian representative for the United Nations, calls for a meeting of the UN Security Council. The topic? Western weapons are being brought to Ukraine so they can defend themselves, and that's not fair. Shahed-136 drone strikes on December 8th and 9th have created unplanned outages in Kyiv, Dnipropetrovsk, and Odessa oblasts, with the eastern half of the city of Kyiv still in the dark. The first deputy spokesperson of the federal government of Germany, Christine Hoffmann, said negotiations are continuing with the United States on providing Ukraine with Leopold II main battle tanks, or MBTs. Hoffman said, quote, Everyone knows our principle. We do not want and will not supply tanks individually, but only in cooperation, end quote. And then incorrectly stated that none of the NATO countries have yet to provide battle tanks. Oh, look, Poland has entered the chat. I wonder if they're going to mention the over 200 T-72 tanks they provided over the summer. Germany. While talks continue, there is no sign that a breakthrough is imminent. Earlier in the year, Ukraine had expressed they were not interested in American M1A1 Abrams MBTs because they're too heavy for Ukrainian infrastructure and have a high fuel demand. Many military experts believe the German-designed Leopold II is better suited. Germany has committed to providing Ukraine with 18 RCH 155mm self-propelled artillery units, 80 pickup trucks, and 7 heavy trucks. The United States Department of Defense announced a new $275 million military aid package to Ukraine, which includes 80,155mm artillery rounds, unspecified rockets for HIMARS, counter-unmanned aerial systems, counter-air defense capabilities, military ambulances, and medical equipment. The United States has provided $22.1 billion in military assistance since 2014, with $19.3 billion committed since February 24th. The Estonian Defense Forces are providing Ukraine with a Roll-2 military field hospital, with funding assistance from Norway and the Netherlands. The 7.3 million euro package will include training for Ukrainian medical specialists. Le Journal de l'Afrique reported that Morocco had reached a deal brokered by the United States to provide Ukraine with, quote, several dozen T-72 MBTs and spare parts. The deal has not been confirmed, but there has been significant chatter that U.S. officials have put a lot on the table to secure the transfer. On September 19th, when Slovenia committed to providing Ukraine with 28 M-555 tanks, a heavily modernized version of a Cold War medium-duty tank, we assessed that the tanks would make an appearance during Rasputitsa in areas where secondary fighting was happening. Video emerged of the first M555 in field service moving through the mud. Ukrainian company Aerodrone has developed two new UAVs for reconnaissance and unmanned cargo delivery, the D-80 Discovery has a payload of 80 kilograms and is designed for surveillance, while the E-300 Enterprise can carry up to 300 kilograms. The E-300 will be offered to the world market first and has a cruise speed of 150 kilometers per hour. (laughs) 
In geopolitical news, unless the Kremlin is planning to open a second front, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is going through some things after Alexei Bordovkin, the Russian ambassador for Kazakhstan, claimed the former Soviet Union Republic is Russophobic and may need to be, quote, denazified in a, quote, special military operation to crush nationalism and extremism. I feel like I've heard this before. It sounds really familiar. This is not going over well in Kazakhstan. The comment from Borodovkin came less than 24 hours after government officials ignored a Kremlin overture to create a tripartite natural gas alliance with Russia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. In response, the Kazakhstan military is moving tanks to the Russian border. Uzbekistan officials rejected the offer. Kazakhstan's president, Kasim Jomart Tokayev, took a softer tone while hedging his bets along the national border with Russia, saying, quote, Although Mr. Borodovkin is a very experienced diplomat, and we have known him for a long time, and he should not identify with propagandists and political scientists, end quote. To absolutely nobody's surprise, Russian state media propagandists have called for the use of nuclear weapons on the capital city of Astana. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, whose party just swept national elections, canceled his annual meeting with Russian President Putin after the Kremlin's latest round of nuclear threats. India and Russia have held the annual meeting in December since 2000, only skipping in 2020 due to COVID. In economic news, if Russia was unhappy about the oil price cap set at $60 a barrel, they did not consider global oil markets coming back down to reality. Russian oil closed at $44 a barrel in trading, not just because of excess supply and transit issues, but because global oil prices continue to fall. Assessment here. Oil prices will be very damaging to the Russian economy. Russia needs oil at $100 a barrel to fully fund its annual government budget. At $60 a barrel, while Moscow still makes tax revenue, oil production operators are breaking even at best after considering extraction costs. At $44 a barrel, for a lot of wells, it's not even worth pulling the oil out of the ground. Oil prices continued their slide, with WTI crude trading at $71 a barrel and Brent holding at $76. United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market closed the week at $2.05 a gallon. That's 54 cents a liter. Fun fact, wholesale gasoline prices in the United States have dropped 21.7% in the last 30 days. Dutch TTF natural gas futures stabilized at the end of the week, holding at 137 euros per megawatt hour for January 2023 delivery and 138 euros for February. Chicago SRW wheat futures ended the week down, closing at $7.33 a bushel for March 2023 delivery. The Russian ruble was unchanged, holding at 63 for one U.S. dollar. And that's what we know. Join me again on Monday for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates.
Thank you for listening.